Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Sports Talk Podcast. Okay, you formed a picture in your mind. Now let's paint a happy little tree right over that picture. Podcast that talks about people who talk about sports. Boom, baby. That's something completely different, right? It's called Trash Sports Takes, and it's hosted by Ryan Seabrest and Brent Liberty, who have been working together on another podcast for quite a while. This is important because it actually sounds like a professional podcast and not someone who is talking into their phone while it's in their pocket and they're driving. It sounds better. Anyway, Trash Sports Takes is a no-holds-barred trash talk of all the sportscasters, fans, and players of all the sports that are just wrong, according to Ryan and Brent. They don't hold back, and they use colorful language to talk about people like Skip Bayless and all the sportscasters. It's quite entertaining, and Ryan and Brent are interested in hearing your take on their takes. They might even bring you on the show so you can roast them on their own show. This show is a lot of fun for sports fans. Head over to your favorite app and type in Trash Sports Takes or go to TrashSportsTakes.com if you want to dig a little deeper in the show. That's Trash Sports Takes, and let me tell you, folks, it's a good one. Hey, BTB buddies. I've had a few life-changing events, including a new grandson and a new job. I have some interviews ready to edit, but I don't really have the editing tools with me to make them sound professional since I'm across the country with my new grandson and my old grandson who is only two years old. So I'm going to turn on the Wayback Machine and run my first episode ever with the legendary Tom Dreesen. Tom was very gracious to be a guest on a brand new podcast with zero listeners, and he had just been on WTF with Mark Marin. My goal was to get him to talk about different stuff than the conversation he had with Mark. I did that. I achieved the goal. Tom was a great guest, and I believe if you've already listened to this, it's worth a second listen. Behind the Bits, we'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks, as always, for listening. All right, I'm finally bringing you the Behind the Bits podcast. I'm excited about this. I've been working on it for a long time. I've described this podcast about the tragedy and triumph of stand-up comedy. And if you've been doing comedy at all, you know that you're going to have both. I've got two goals for the podcast. First, I want to talk to comics in all phases of their careers about their craft. Why do they do stand-up? How long did it take to get good at it? What's the writing process? How did you find your voice? All these questions. I'm hoping to bring new comics, comedy professionals, and comedy nerds all the advice and golden nuggets of information and inspiration that will help them be the best that they can be. Second, I'd like to build a community of comics that can share advice, bitch about the business, help everyone get booked, and just have someone to lean on when times get tough or celebrate with them when you have a killer show. 
So who am I? I'm Scott Curtis. I'm a 55-year-old guy who's been married for 31 years. I've got two grown kids and one cool grandson. I started doing stand-up at the age of 50 because I'm a super late bloomer, and I just fell in love with it right away. I don't have any big aspirations for myself, but I've gotten to know a lot of comics who do. They, they want to go somewhere in the business. So I want to be a helper, and I think this podcast can accomplish that in a big way. I'll probably talk more about my stand-up escapades and the life in general and future podcasts, but right now I'm just excited to get this one moving. I talked to my wife, Lisa, about the, about doing this podcast, and she asked me who my dream guest would be. And without skipping a beat, I said, Tom Dreesen. Tom was the first comic that ever caught my attention back when I saw him on the Mike Douglas show. Now, I was about 10 years old. And for you youngsters, Mike Douglas had a daytime talk show for a million years. The rest of the story of my first Tom Dreesen experience is in the interview, so I won't bore you with it twice. So Tom Dreesen is my dream guest, and that's why I asked him to be my first guest. I was pretty surprised when he said yes and called me the very next week. Now, if I sound a little choked up at the start of the interview, it's because I was. That was a big deal to me. We talked a lot about his history, so I won't bore you with a long bio here. Here's what you need to know about Tom, though. He's been in the business for over 50 years. He was in the first black and white comedy team with Tim Reed and the last, and he was Frank Sinatra's opening act for 14 years. Now, let's let that sink in. He was so good at his craft that Sinatra wanted Tom to open for him all the way up until he retired. And he was so good that he could entertain a crowd that didn't come to see him. Obviously, they came to see Sinatra, but Tom would go out first and get the crowd ready, and they loved him. Okay, let's get this show on the road. But before we start, since this is a new podcast, I'd really appreciate a good rating on whatever platform you listen to your podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever, if you like it. Obviously, if you don't like it, then maybe don't leave a rating yet. Also, please share it up with your friends and help spread the word. You can follow us on Facebook at Behind the Bits Podcast, on Twitter at the BTBPC. It was hard to get a name, so it's the BTBPC. And on Instagram at uh, Behind the Bits Podcast. I may do some other social media in the future, but like I said, I'm 55 years old and three of them are a lot for me. Thanks for listening to this long intro and here's Tom Dreesen. Hey folks, welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. This is Scott Curtis. I'm here with my first guest, Tom Dreesen. You may have heard of him. Hey, Tom. Hey, Scott, how you doing? I'm doing great. I just wanted to let you know about my history with you. So when I, I think I was around 10 or 11 years old, I was watching the Mike Douglas show. And you came on and did a bit about somebody offering you drugs and uh, you saying, they say it makes you feel like the back of your head's falling off. And you came up with your punchline was something like, uh, why don't you just hit me in the back of the head with a shovel? <laughs> uh, what it was, the bit, <clears throat> I haven't done it in years, but I was at a party and a guy said, pop this and sniff it. Uh -huh. I said, what does it do? He said, it's wonderful feels like the whole back of your head's coming off. 
I said, why don't I just light up a cigarette and you hit me in the face with a shovel? Okay, so that hooked me. I, when you're 10 or 11 years old, you, you, you're not concentrating on anything. And for some reason, you hit me as the funniest guy in the world. So I started just looking for wherever you were, like when you did Dinah Shore, Carson, Griffin. You even did like Soul Train and American Bandstand. And all I obviously there was no internet, so all I had was a TV guide to tell me when you were on. <laughs> And did, you did a, a couple episodes of Midnight Special, too, didn't you? Yeah. I After my first Tonight Show, it changed my whole career. <clears throat> the moment I, I, I got bumped three times before I did my first Tonight Show, but I got on the fourth time, and that night it was a hot crowd. <clears throat> and, and Johnny called me back through the curtain after I went through the curtain. After my bow, he called me back to take a second bow back through the curtain. And, and, and I have never stopped working since this is my 50th year in show business. I ended up doing 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. But from that point on, I started doing Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand, and Hollywood Squares. I, I, I was doing game shows, and that, that show just launched me. I, I ended up doing like over 50 Dinah, over 50 Merv Griffin, over 50 Mike Douglas. And, and it was just... It, it just and, and in Soul Train, the only white comedian ever do um, Soul Train because I put an album out in front of an all-black audience called "That White Boy Is Crazy." That's a great I was album. The first white comedian, or the only white comedian, ever to do an album in front of an all-black audience. Mm. <clears throat> and so, you did that in Harvey. You recorded that in Harvey, didn't you? I did. Yes, I went back to my hometown. I was living out in California, but I went back and worked a little club called Benji's that's no longer there. But because I, I figured they'd be the, the best critics of whether or not this material was good or not, because it's people I grew up with. And it was really fun, really exciting. But again, in those days, wherever you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? And you say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth would be, oh, yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson? And if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one or going to be one, but you weren't one then. And so every, we all flocked to the West Coast when Johnny Carson moved his show out to California in 1972. By the time I got out here, it was 75, and by that time, everybody knew one appearance on The Tonight Show, and your life could change. Right. Thinking about that, let's back up a little bit and talk about how you got started in comedy. Because everybody who's a comic wants to know how everybody got started. How, how did that all start out for you? I had never thought of ever being in show business, it was the furthest thing from my mind. There was no way you could have ever told me that one day I'd be in this business. I spent, I had, I grew up very poor in Harvey, Illinois. Eight brothers and sisters lived in a shack. Five of us slept in one bed, raggedy poor, um, holes in my shoes from the time I was, you know, you know, go, growing up my first pair of shoes till I, till I went to Navy. I just was raggedy poor kid. I came out in the service and, and I spent four years in the service and then I came out and Got married right away, kids coming, and, and I, I worked construction. I went from job to job, never being real happy in the end. Just getting good at whatever it was, from working construction to working on a loading dock to being coming a teamster and then dropping my card and becoming management and, uh, and then selling life insurance. I was a bartender. I was a photographer. I was a private detective. I had every job I've known the man. Never happy with any of them, never feeling quite fulfilled. You know, mm -hmm. and then I joined a civic group called the JCs, the Junior Chamber of Commerce, and uh, they taught to leadership training program and all that uh, programs and how to serve on a committee, how to chair a committee, how to uh, work 
projects that made the community a better place to live. And in doing so, you got leadership training program. Anyhow, that is a long story, but I wanted to get to the point was one of the problems of our community in those days were our youth using drugs as it is today. Uh-huh. And so I wrote a drug education program that I want to run as a JC project. I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It's a concept I had. Uh-huh. And I had a, a guy who was going to help me in the JCs. His name was John DeBoer. He's a white guy. And the night I proposed it to the JCs that I wanted to run this drug education program as a JC program, the, the JCs approved of it. They sanctioned it. And that same evening, a young black man came up to me and said, I would like to help you with that project. It's my first meeting here. I just moved in here from Norfolk, Virginia. And he joined the JCs and he wanted to help me. I said, gee, I already got a guy, but thank you. Uh And the next day, as fate would have it, John DeBoer, my friend, called me and said, I can't do it. I got a new job. I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. So I called him and we start working on the project. And uh, we went into the classrooms and the program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. JCs used it as a model program throughout their publications on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. And one day, a little eighth grade girl said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. But we used to do jokes off of one another. We played records at uh-huh. the kids' attention, and then we'd plant the seeds. But as she was leaving the, the classroom, she said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And two days later, we were talking about what this little girl said. And I, we said, would you? he said, would you do it? I said, I don't know. We'd do it. We didn't know what to do. There were no comedy clubs in America in those days. That uh-huh. was 1969. So we started writing what we thought was material. And we wrote for three or four months. And finally, we got the courage of going to a nightclub, a jazz club, and ask if we could get up after the group took a break. And the owner said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And we went up. We bombed. We, we talked so fast. Uh-huh. We were going 100 miles an hour. We just wanted to remember all of our lines. Right. And we came off stage, and we got the owner in a corner, and we rushed him in a corner. How'd we do? How'd we do? What'd you think? What'd you think? He said, I don't know how you did. You never gave me a chance <laughs> to laugh. He said, come back tomorrow and slow down. So we came back the next night and we got big laughs. That was it was like an epiphany for me. The moment I it was something I had written that got a laugh, and when the room burst into laughter, it was like an epiphany, like one of those B movies you see where the dark clouds open up and the sun bursts through, and you go, "Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. this is what I want to do. I want to be a comedian." And and I, I know I how that feels, story. Tom. I know how that yeah, feels. You, you, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so does every comedian. Yeah. Every, everybody who loves our profession knows that moment that you said, "This is what I want to do." Mm-hmm. And, and to be honest with you, Scott, the next day I couldn't sleep all that night. It was a Friday night. I got up the next morning and I went to church. There was no service. I, a Catholic church that I went to as a little boy, where I was an altar boy, where I sang in the choir. And it was a Saturday morning, and I couldn't sleep all night. <laughs> and I went and I prayed. I said, God, I now know what I want to do. And I was the only one in the church. It was a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And I said, I know what I want. I want to be a comedian. God, if you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything else. I'll do charities. I'm making all these promises. Because the thought that you could make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me. Right. And, and that's why it's 50 years in September. That was 50 years ago. That's fantastic. Hey, can I ask you And a little addendum. Yeah, go ahead. Not to cut you off, Scott, but a little That was 50 years ago in September. In September, I went back to Chicago, to Harvey, Illinois, to Ascension Church, where I knelt and prayed as a young 
first time on stage comedian. And I went back and I gave a sermon to the congregation called The Power of Prayer. It has worked in my life. So uh-huh. Everything has a circle, full that, circle. That's that, that's fantastic. Uh, I wanted to get back with when you were doing the show with uh, Tim did you guys have like a writing process or did you just you guys just bring ideas in and shoot them around? How did you guys get an act together? We were so naive. We didn't know how to do it. We just started writing what we thought would, would make us laugh. And we were real, real green at it. We had a friend named Dickie Owings who had never, he was a funny guy. And he, uh, a guy that I knew from grade school. And so he started helping us. We'd sit down, we'd try to create these kind of little vignette. I took Tim to meet my Italian father, a routine where Tim was teaching me how to be black. A lot of routines had nothing to do with race at all. We did a bit on the dating game. And then we had another routine where a guy who had a speech impediment was going into a fast food franchise, but they gave all the drinks and the sandwiches tricky, catchy names. You know, <laughs> the magnificent, it wasn't a hamburger. It was a magnificent munchy monster. It wasn't a, a Coke. It was a Bob's Bouncing Bounding Beverage. They weren't French fries. They were Carol's Crispy Crunchy Crinkles. And, and yeah, just silly routines that we put together and then a little patter in between. And we were rookies, and, and we stumbled and stumbled mm-hmm. and failed and then got to start getting better and better. And as time went by, uh, he was an insurance, I was an insurance salesman for Columbus Mutual Life Insurance, and he was a salesman for EI DuPont. So we knew how to get in offices. We knew how to sell. And we would we, we'd get ourselves in the situations where we had to deliver. And we finally started getting better. And I think what really turned us around was when we went on the Playboy circuit in those days. In those days, you did four or five shows a night. There were 17 Playboy clubs in America and two resorts, one at Great Gorge, New Jersey, and the other at Lake Geneva, mm-hmm. Wisconsin. And then the Playboy clubs are all over, Boston, New York, Baltimore, Chicago, Los Angeles, Miami, Kansas City, Cincinnati. We worked them all. And you do four or five shows a night, and we started getting razor-sharp timing. So you guys really made history as being—weren't you weren't you the first black-and-white comedy team? We not only were the first, we were the last. Yeah. There's never been one since. <laughs> you know, uh, that was 40—we well, broke up 45 years ago. Uh-huh. But, but uh, we wrote a book called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and White. What it was like touring the nation from 1969 to 1975 in the North and the South, no comedy clubs. So we worked all black clubs in the North and the South, what they affectionately call the Chitlin Circuit. Mm-hmm. And then we worked all white nightclubs, too. And so we paid dues that no other act ever had to pay. We wrote a book about it that now Netflix is considering maybe doing a series about our life, you know, do a four to six part series. Wow, that would be great. And if folks don't know who Tim Reed is, if you go back and watch uh, WKRP in Cincinnati, it's Venus Flytrap. And he's done a lot. He has so many acting credits. It's uh, as long as my arm, but also a well, big fan of For your younger audience, he was also on a show called Sister. He played the father. Oh, there and, you go. Uh, he was on, you know, Simon and Simon. He played a character named Downtown Brown. He, I remember he's that. He's done yeah. a lot of acting. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, and so I know that, that you were really enjoying the comedy team with Tim, and he, I think he decided to go on to try the acting career. Where did that put you? It broke my heart. It was like a broken marriage. When Tim um, decided to break up the act, I had my, everything that I was dreaming of, praying for, hoping, was this comedy team would be the best comedy team that America had ever known, that mm-hmm. we were going to go out and try to just knock the world on its, on its uh, with our material. And when that 
woke up, I had never been on stage alone. And, and it just rocked my whole world. And and I, I sat in a bar one night drinking beer until <laughs> 2 o'clock in the morning. My buddy owned a bar, and I was thinking, what can I do? I, I was always real good at alternatives. So I'm, I'm look, thinking I can either get another black guy and do the same act, or I could go it alone and be a stand-up, or I could quit the business and get a job in a factory and make my ex-wife at that time happy because she hated show business and didn't want me in it. Wow. And and, and so I, I, I sat at the bar, and I decided – I was going to go it alone. I was going to try to become a stand-up comedian, make it on my own, and the Tonight Show would be my goal. And as I was sitting in the bar, and my buddy was getting ready to close the bar up, he owned the bar, and I thought, I had read a book called PMA, Positive Mental Attitude, years ago, and in it, it said, if you know what you want to do in life, and if it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything that can deter you from that noble achievement, and then get that out of your life. And I sat at that bar, and I'm drinking. I'm thinking, what could stop me if I wanted to make it to the Tonight Show? Mm-hmm. What could stop me, man, woman, or beast? Or, you know? <laughs> and all I thought of was drinking, because I like to drink beer. I used to uh-huh. love to drink beer. And I thought, that might stop me, not waking up with clear heads every day. So I pushed the – they had two beers in front of me. I pushed them at the end of the bar, and I said, I quit. My buddy said, quit for the night, Tommy? I said, I quit. He said, no, for the night. I said, no, I quit. <laughs> and he went, yeah. And I never touched another drop till I – became famous and became doing tonight shows and everything uh-huh. and then i tried a couple of beers and it didn't taste like it used to so i still don't drink to this day well, that's that, that's one way to go at it get rid of the stuff that isn't going to work for you your home base at that point was still illinois and you decided to go to la to pursue that career what changed? Obviously, you've been doing an act with Tim, and you guys have been writing together, and you're doing the skits, vignettes, and things like that. How did you start actually writing for yourself? I, I was in the habit of writing because I wrote for the comedy team, but I, I would MC sometimes local events, even when I was with the comedy team. Mm-hmm. And I'd always have to write a joke or two to open up the evening's festivities. So I got into the habit of that. And then I start realizing what joke structure was. And, and I got in the habit of writing and, and I got where I had five minutes. And right. then I got where I had 10 minutes. And then you get 15 minutes. And when I got out to the West Coast, I kept trying out at the comedy store. Because mm-hmm. that was the only game in town out here in those days. That was 1975. And if you were going to m- make it out here, that there was no improvisation in, in Los Angeles at that time. There was no other clubs. There was a couple of small kind of clubs, but the comedy store was on Sunset Boulevard, and it was the place to go. Uh-huh. Every night, talent coordinators went into that club looking for new talent. As I said earlier, the talent coordinators from the Johnny Carson, from the Tonight Show, from the Mike Douglas Show, from the Merv Griffin Show, from the Dinah Shore Show, from the Midnight Best Show, from Rock Concert. Soul Train, American Dancing. They were all looking for comedians. Comedy was the rock and roll of the 70s. <laughs> right. People were getting discovered every night. But, so you had to get on at the comedy store. And the pressure was enormous to pass the audition at the comedy store. Because Mitzi Shore, the woman who owned it, she was the one who you had to audition for. It took me almost a month to even get an audition with her. Mm-hmm. To get the opportunity to get up on stage and for her to look at me. And the pressure... I can't describe it because if Mitchie didn't like you, it was time to go home. You had to go back to Toledo or Harvey, Illinois, or wherever you were from because it, there was no other game in town right. that could launch your career. 
so that, that five minutes I did in front of Mitchie after about a month was really pressure driven, but I had enough material that that I, I, I got over. The writing aspect of it is when if you're writing a joke, this is something you have to learn earlier if anybody's listening who wants to write a joke. Comedy is two things, basically. Number one, it's nine-tenths surprise. Uh-huh. The audience laughs because they didn't think you were going to say that or do that. So the setup line has to hide the punchline. And the other rule is there are no victimless jokes. Right. Who's the victim in the joke? You, society, the, your daughter's dating a punk rocker, your wife's best friend, you. Somebody is the victim in this joke. L- let me digress. When I was in the business about four months, I went to Mr. Kelly's in Chicago, and there was a comedian named Mort Sow. He was very famous at the time, and he was working Mr. Kelly's. Uh-huh. And I snuck backstage, and I went to his dressing room, and I knocked on the door. And I, I figured his manager would answer, and they'd throw me out. But he answered. He was all alone. He said, yeah, can I help uh-huh. you? I said, my name is Tom Dreesen, and I'm a new comedian. I wondered if I could talk to you for a few minutes. He said, yeah, sure, come on in. And he talked to me for two hours before his next show. But he, wow. he gave me advice and counsel. But one of the things he said was, do you write your own material? And I said, yes. He said, remember, they're wrong. And I said, uh-huh. who? He said, they. I said, they. He said, who are you writing about? They're wrong. Government, they're wrong. The airlines, they're wrong. You're wrong. Your wife, <laughs> your mother-in-law. Who's wrong in this joke? One of the things in the short time I've been doing stand-up, I found, is you got to be pretty ruthless on yourself. When something's not funny, even though you think it's funny, it's just not funny. and <laughs> You have to get rid of it. But the other thing, too, is when you're working on new material, when you got to set five minutes or ten minutes or twenty minutes when you're new, and you, that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. When you're working on new material, don't try that new material out on a Monday night in front of four people. Right. You know, yeah. try that new material out on Saturday night in front of a packed house mm-hmm. and put it in the middle. Work on your stuff that's already working and then get to the new stuff in the middle and then go home with your strong stuff. But give that new material a chance. But if it isn't working, look at it clearly and say, did I, is, did I hide the punchline or did they see it coming? Mm-hmm. Or also, did I, was there not a clear enough victim in this joke, you know? Right. Clear enough observation. That's very good advice. So when you were doing, it took you a month for Mitzi to see you. What happened after that? What, then when I when she saw me, she said to me, yeah, I can see you have stage presence and that, you, you know, you, that you've done this before. So she put me on the schedule. Now the schedule was you went on like Tuesday night at one o'clock in the morning. And then you went on, you worked that for a while. Then you went on. You finally got on maybe Wednesday at 11 o'clock, and, and then mm-hmm. pretty soon you're getting prime time, like 9, 9.30 uh, and weeknights. And then, then they put you on weekends, and you're on at 1 o'clock in the morning again. And you worked your way to prime time until you became one of the mainstays at the comedy store. And those days, I was working every night with all these unknown comedians, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Michael Keaton, Robin <laughs> Williams, Gallagher. The girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger. These are new, new kids. Yeah. I recognize a few of those names. I, I don't know where they're at today, but I'm doing Scott Curtis's podcast. Yeah. There. <laughs> As Bob Zane would them. say, you've derived, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, one of the uh, one of the talent coordinators from Carson saw you for the Tonight Show, and you got your break. It took three bumps to get you there, but you you finally got your break after well, that. Wasn't let me set you up. Okay. They didn't come to see me until I pestered them to come and see. It wasn't like they were hanging out one night and I was lucky and I got up. Uh-huh. You you either had to have an agent, and if you didn't, then you had to 
take over. If, if the mountain doesn't come to the man, the man must go to the mountain. Right. You know? So I, I just, I pestered the hell out of the, of Craig Tennis, one of the coordinators at the Tonight Show. I gently did it. I had been a salesman and I knew how to do that. But I won him over and got him to come and see me one night and, and I scored that night. Uh-huh. And then he called me in the office. I tried out uh, that night that he, he came to look at some new acts, a, a comedy team called Bomb and Eston, a new kid named Billy Crystal and me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't I don't know whatever happened to Billy, but yeah. <laughs> anyhow, my, my point is that, that I scored that night. Then he called me into his office and he said, okay, I saw you do 20 minutes. Show me what five you would do if I put you on the Tonight Show. And I did a five-minute routine in front of him. And he said, okay, take out that one joke. Try uh-huh. it again. And I put a new one in. And pretty soon he said, okay, you're on next Tuesday. And, uh-huh. and that's when I, for a week, you don't eat. You go over your routine. Because in those days, 26 million people watched that show. Not like today, but... 26 million people, one appearance, and your career was launched. Freddie Prince sitcom the next day after he did his first Tonight Show. The next day, I was signed to a CBS development deal the next day. After I did my first Tonight Show, a guy named Lee Curlin from New York was with CBS. He happened to be watching the Tonight Show, and he contacted uh, me on the West Coast. And William Moore signed me the next day. I'm in the unemployment line (laughs) one day with a wife and three kids in the unemployment line. And the next day... My whole life changed. Sammy Davis Jr. took me on the road for three years. I, I can't tell you wh- how much power that show had mm-hmm. in those days. So. I, I, obviously, I, I came to see you in Valparaiso when you did your, your Sinatra show. And tell me a little bit, you worked for Sammy Davis, wanted you to do a couple shows, and then I think Frank Stoya. How did that all come about? First of all, let me explain to your audience when you're saying that you saw me do my Sinatra show. Mm-hmm. So they don't think I'm a Sinatra singer in person. No, right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I toured with Frank Sinatra for 14 years in 45, 50 cities a year. And I now do a 90-minute show called An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. So I do it in theaters where I do stand-up comedy. I do stand-up comedy for about a half hour, and then I segue to a bar. And as there's a bottle of Jack Daniels on the bar, which is Frank's pick of choice. Right. And I start telling stories, and pictures come on the screen authenticating the stories. It's my life story, but pictures and video you know, come on the screen, taking you to all throughout my career to finally to touring with Frank Sinatra. And I don't want to. I don't want to stroke your ego too much. But you talk about not sleeping. After I saw your show and I met you, I didn't sleep that night. I just, I just laid awake and thought about it. Oh, that's well. I'm, I'm glad that that's what you want to do. You as an entertainer, you hope that you reach people. Right. I've always thought that a good comedian could make you laugh for an hour and a half, but a great comedian can make you laugh and cry right. in an hour and a half. And I only saw two comedians do that: Richard Pryor and Red Skelton. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to do that in my one man show. The, as I have them laughing, laughing, but then I take them to some serious points in my life, the, the comedy team as well as and the dues we paid as well as Sinatra to the joy of that, to funny being a pallbearer at his funeral mm-hmm. and having to speak at his funeral and have him in tears and then bring him home with a, a funny monologue. You know? right. that, that, that show is a real challenge. But how your question was, how did I meet Frank? I was touring all over the country. with I was touring with every artist. In those days, if a comedian could work clean, a lot of headliners wanted you to open for them because they brought in family. And so they, they needed a comedian that wouldn't work blue. People listening who do not know what blue means, comedians know, it means using curse words or foul material. So I was in demand 
because I was doing all these TV shows. They saw me working clean. Sammy Davis Jr. took me on the road for three years, but Mac Davis took me on the road. Tony Orlando and Don took me on the road. Frankie Avalon, I worked with him a lot, but he's a good buddy of mine. James Darren, I'm trying to think of the different artists at all. Every, every time I turned around, somebody else was hiring me to open for them. And then Smokey Robinson, uh, who was also a dear friend, Smokey Robinson hired me to work with him, and I'm turning around the country with Smokey. Wow. And and then Frank Sinatra was appearing next door at Harris Hotel when we were working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. Mm-hmm. And, and as you could say, I explained this in the one-man show, that I rushed over one night after my show at Caesars with Smokey. I got off stage, and I didn't even change out of my stage clothing. I ran over to Harris so I could catch Frank Sinatra. And uh, uh-huh. as I was running in the showroom, the, the vice president of Harris Hotel saw me, and he was talking to a big guy with a cigar. And he said, Tommy, come here quick. And I came over and he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. And I recognized the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face. Like he heard that a million times. Uh-huh. And he said, he winked at the vice president. And I caught the wink. And he looked at me. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 And he started laughing. Yeah. He said, I like this kid. And, and a week later, they gave me a week with Frank at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City. And the second night I worked with him, he and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. And I can remember like it was yesterday. He pushed his knife and his fork aside. He was eating. He said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. Mm-hmm. And I didn't say, let <laughs> me go check my calendar. You 14 years. Wow. That's what a story. And I know that you had the CBS development deal and people approached you for other deals, but uh, you just really, you really enjoyed what you were doing. So you, you kept it up and you got to respect that. Ryan Stewart here of the Two Lives Dudes. I want to tell you about Herbal Erect, a male enhancement instant drink made with natural ingredients I now use. It is specially formulated to improve any intimate encounter and maximize your sexual potential. My boyfriend's only 32 and didn't have any problems in the bedroom. I bought Herbal Erect for him to make our experience even better. Now after sex, we both say, OMG, that was great. Remember, sex is supposed to be fun and enjoyable. For a free sample, visit herbal-erect.com. That's herbal-erect.com. Also available on Amazon. But here's the thing, Scott, and every comedian should hear this. Yeah, I really enjoyed what I was doing, but I knew I had to continue to grow as an artist. So I kept writing and I would come home and and, and, uh, and the moment I came off the road working in Caesars Palace or the Riviera Hotel or the, the Desert Inn, the Sands Hotel, these big major venues, the moment I came back to L.A., I would sign up to go to the comedy store or now the Laugh Factory. Mm-hmm. And I do it. This I've been in the business 50 years. Last Saturday, I went to the Laugh Factory with my notes, and I tried out new material. You, you, we never stop learning in this business, and we never, in my opinion, you never arrive. Right. You never solely make it. Wh- whatever you think, we're always growing as an artist. And so you should continue to keep working on new material, keep writing new material, and continue to what I call staying oiled. It's good to t- take time, time off, but also right. it's also good to... To stay oiled, you know. Yeah, and writing's as easy as having a notebook, or now with smartphones, having a recorder close by and just take taking the notes and writing them. I feel like comedy, just the sets I've done. If you go out and have your best set ever, have a really great night, 
when it's over, you're right back to zero. And you have to do that again the next night and the next night and the next night in order to, and, and like you said, you never arrive. You're just going, you're going on to the next gig. That's right. Yeah. You, you know, <clears throat> it's this way. When I made it to Mr. Kelly's and in Chicago, and that was at the big club when, as a single, when I went back to work, Mr. Kelly's opening night, you, you, I was really nervous because I'd been with the comedy team for years and I, I was afraid the press would say, Tom without Tim is not an act, maybe, right. or something like that. So I was, you know, waiting. I went on and I scored, and all the media was there. In those days, the critics, Chicago Tribune, the Chicago Sun Times, the Chicago Today, there was like the Chicago Daily News, there was like five or six newspapers in there at that time. And then there's a variety magazine. And so, you know, all the critics were there, and I scored. Mm. And some of them came backstage and said, Wow, really good, and congratulations. And, and I knew that I was going to get good reviews, and they left. And I was sitting in there, and I was thinking, wow, man, wow, I, I, I did it tonight. I got him. Uh-huh. And I hear not five minutes, Mr. Dreesen, a brand-new audience is out there. Right. A brand-new audience. So your options up all over again. Dick Sean once said, most people live from day to day. Singers live from song to song. Comedians live from joke to joke. You got it. Yeah. <laughs> your option is up at the end of every joke. Yeah, exactly. So you're right. It's, 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 you're right. It's, you never arrive. Right. But bask in the glow of the nights you kill. Remember that warm feeling, that wonderful feeling. Because once you know that you can do this and that the material is good and it got good reaction. And if you have a bad night, an off night, you don't go into a turmoil because you know this stuff works and you work. Right. You, it just was a might have been a bad setup in the room, might be just a, a, a tough audience. Al Jolson used to say there's no such thing as a bad audience, only a bad performer. Mm-hmm. Al Jolson's full of it. I met a lot of bad audiences. <laughs> I've seen a few myself. I wanted to get into I, because you've stayed current and you still work with some when you do your fundraising and all that you still work with the younger guys sometimes and I wanted to so you know what's going on how do you feel that comedy has changed since you started and how do you feel like it's stayed the same the the way it changes dramatic in, in my opinion the other reason I go to the laugh factory on weekends when I'm off the road is they have young black couples, young white couples, young Asian couples, young Latino couples. So I want to stay in touch with this younger audience as well. And on the, the bill, there's always a lot of other young comedians. And the difference is that when I started out, the only way you could get known was doing national television. Right. And that meant you had to work clean. You had the right material that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. Mm-hmm. So you really had to really... No, it was real creative writing, and so you had to. The problem with the F word is that it's a noun, it's a pronoun, it's an adjective, it's an <laughs> adverb, right. and so you can go there anytime. You can't think of something funny to say, a clever adjective. I'll give you right. a, a, a funny true story. I was at the Laugh Factory about a year ago, and I was getting, I was upstairs getting ready to go on, and I was around the corner looking at my notes, and around the corner there were two young comedians who didn't know I was there. Uh-huh. And one of them said, Tom Dreesen is here. And the other comedian said, yeah, he's old school. <laughs> the other comedian said, he's old school? What do you mean? He said, well, he doesn't use the F word. And the other comedian said, he doesn't use the F word. What does he use for adjectives? <laughs> and I stuck my head around the corner and I said, adjectives. Right. You know, that's what I use for adjectives. Right. So, right. I mean, I, I say that, but that's the difference it, that you 
you know, now, can I work blue? I can do a stag roast with the best of them. I've done the stag roast for only guys, and you can be as blue as you want. But I couldn't make any money doing that. And when I started out, that's the way you got to be known by working clean uh-huh. and writing clean, creative material. And also, I started doing a lot of corporate dates where the money really is at. Right. You know, uh, corporate dates, so you don't have to worry about are you drawing are many tickets sold? You go out there, and there's already a built-in audience, and they're paying you more money than you can make in a month in a comedy club. Right. And and uh, and so, but you you couldn't offend their clients, or you had the right material that could make everybody there laugh without offending the president, of the company's clientele, and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. For for my act, I work almost totally clean, and I've let the f words slip a couple times, and. It just doesn't work for me. And and some of the younger comics talk to me and say, I really need to do a clean act so I can get on more shows. And I'm like, all you got to do is just uh, drop some of those words and some of that material and you'll be fine. It's creatively, it's easy to go there when you can't think of anything. You know, a, lot of, a lot of the um, comedians, when it, they first started doing this, see, here's what changed was cable television. Right. In, in the days when I started out, television wasn't that big. You, you, again, had to work clean. When cable came along and you could work as blue as you want and, and still draw, you could work blue as you want and maybe sell out arenas. That changed the whole course of comedy. And then, young, see, when I started out, every one of those people in that audience were sophisticated. They knew what stand-up comedy was about because they had seen Jack Benny's and Bob Hope's and, and George Burns and, and Johnny Carson at night. And they had seen these clean comedians across the country, Danny Thomas, and working, do an hour of stand-up comedy and not swear once. So they, they were judges. Today, young kids grow up watching comedians using the F word and every and mm-hmm. all sorts of sexual references. And they think when they're 18, 19 years old and they go to their first comedy club and they hear these comics working like that, they say, oh, that's comedy. Oh, I see. You can swear in public as yeah. much as you want. And that, that's adult. And they thought, they think, wow, that's what stand-up comedy is. I tell them, you know, it's, it, 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 about the, anytime you use an adjective in your act more than once, it starts to lose its effect. Right. About the 15th time you said the F word, I got it. You right. Know, you, 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 the shock value wears off. Yeah. Know? Yeah. It's it's just part of the background at that point. I wanted to bounce something off of you. I, I, I actually produced my first show last week. It was a Thursday night, and it was a new club. And I had a headliner that was he, – he's from my area, but he was – he's quite a bit more seasoned than I am. And we did the show, and, and it went pretty good, but we were talking after the show, and he mentioned something that I never thought about. He, he said that most people discover comics now on YouTube or like Netflix or something like that. They don't see them live, so they don't know how to act when they are in a live situation, so they don't laugh as much. Have you seen that? No. Okay, you're a superstar, so th- that's a little different. I'm not, but thank you. But no, <laughs> I, I don't think I don't think that's the, the the truth that they don't know how to. Sometimes the room is not set up right. A lot of times you learn this as you get older mm-hmm. in comedy that there's certain rooms that are set. For, let me give you an example. The Laugh Factory in Los Angeles is the best comedy room. It's intimate. The people are right to the stage. Mm-hmm. There's a low ceiling. Laughter right. is sound. It hits the ceiling and comes back at you. If you're 
in, in a room that has a real high ceiling, that's not good. If you're outdoors, it's even tougher because uh-huh. we set our timing off of their laughter. Right. And the fuller the sound, the better it is. I, when I opened for Sinatra, I used to work 20,000-seat arenas where 20,000 people, and you were in the round. Right. They were all around you. It wasn't like you, there was a proscenium where they're out in front of you. Uh-huh. They're around you. So you had to learn to walk the stage and all So sometimes the logistics of the room make the difference, but and, and sometimes the size of the audience and laughter is infectious. People start laughing and that the others laugh. When you go into um, a, a, a small room, most people do not want to share their laughter. It's like their tears. If you had a big, <laughs> big laugh, somebody might, your, your wife or, your, or if you're a woman, your husband, honey, keep it down. Whenever I see somebody in an audience doing that to somebody, I'll go say, hey, 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 leave her alone. You laugh as much as you want. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, no. I, I, I make jokes about it. But going, that's a long answer to a short question. I, I don't think that people watch us off of YouTube and not they don't know how to react when they come into it. Now, if they heard the same joke, mm-hmm. you know, you see that this is the other dilemma of the comedian. Why the magician is so we are so awed by the magician because he never shows you how he did the trick. Right. If he showed you how he did the trick, the next time you saw it, you'd go, "Oh, you wouldn't applaud because you know how it's done." Right. With the comedian, once he shows you the punchline, you now you laugh the first time because you were surprised. Mm-hmm. The next time it's coming. So if you've watched somebody do all of their act. On, a, on a YouTube, and then you go see them in a club, and they're doing the same material. You've heard it already, you know? right? Yeah, it's cool. It's live, but yeah, I've seen that a couple times. But most of the comics I see to put some new stuff out, so that that definitely makes for a better show. One but, of the but also think about the room. Here's the other thing too: mm-hmm. if there's empty seats in the room, <clears throat> if there's a gap between you and the audience, the your energy. If you're a singer, a juggler, a comedian. You're on stage, your energy, and you're trying to take your energy from your routine to the audience, going all the way through the audience and back up to you, mm-hmm. back to the audience and back up to you. That's like an electrical current that you're you're going with this audience, right? Now, if there's gaps in the audience or waiters and waitresses waiting on people while you're trying to do your act, it's like taking a scissors and cutting that electrical current uh-huh. from happening. So, the more see, why I like to work theaters when you saw me in Valparaiso. Did you see any waiters and waitresses walking around? Did no. you see any 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 the, the, the audience was right in front of me? Right. Because that was set up for comedy. That mm. was set up perfect for performing. People, if they had a drink, they had it out in front. Then they come in and sit in the theater. That's the best place to work. Right. When we work comedy rooms or stuff like that, and waiters and waitresses are serving drinks, they're constantly interrupting your flow. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. Yeah, I. So I that's agree why my with corporate that. dates. I have it in my contract. I don't go on during dinner. I don't go on during dessert. I don't go on at all till all the dinners and the waiters and waitresses are out of the room. They're not pouring coffee. They're done with all that. And so I always insisted after when I do a corporate date that after dinner, the president of the company or somebody gets up and does a little talk so the audience can start focusing to that center stage. And then finally, the waiters and waitresses are cute to get out of the room. And when they're all settled down, then introduce me. Mm-hmm. Because if you introduce me while they're eating dinner or waiters and waitresses, I'm at the mercy of that. And I know that doesn't work. I'm on the, the one of the same groups as you, the one of the comedy groups and the, the Dobie group. And I wanted to see if you'd expand on something that you've commented a few times. So there's been a lot of uh, threads about the PC culture and how that's changing comedy and all that kind of stuff. And it seems like your comments pretty much always the same. Are you funny? 
Can you expand on that and tell people, tell, tell these comics how they can overcome PC and all that stuff? So everybody understands the politically correct police are out there today and they'll, they're trying to destroy comedy. Mm. Look, we have the First Amendment in this country. You can say whatever you want to say. Now, we can say whatever we want to say. You don't have to listen to it. You can shut us off. Right. You can get up and walk out the door and ask for your money back. But they have the right to say it. And there's only one rule in comedy. Be funny. Right. That's the only rule. Be funny. Now, you may, you're not going to be funny for everybody. No comic is. And that's why some people say, see, I love what I don't like. When, you know who my favorite comedian is? Everybody has their own sense of humor, what makes them laugh. Right. But there's only one rule in comedy. Be funny. Are there things that are tasteless? Absolutely. Are there jokes that, that, that I find repulsive? Yes, but there are jokes other and and other people think that they're very funny. That's what it's all about. When you start telling comedians, okay, I want you to go out there and now, by the way, don't say this and don't say that. <laughs> don't bring up this and don't bring up that. You're putting them in a box. Right. And once you put that box and the lid on it, they're no longer that free-flowing comic like Robin Williams was. Right. That, that once once their heads went, they went any direction they wanted to go. And that, that was the genius of them. Now, again, the politically correct police, I, I, I probably shouldn't do this, but I'll tell you, <laughs> you can go on the Internet and, and see, uh, say, Tom Dreesen rants on politically correct police. Uh -huh. It's a little short video I did. I'm not going to tell you about it, but your watchers or your listeners can go to uh, the Internet. I think it's on YouTube. Tom Dreesen rants. R-A-N-T-S, rants about politically correct police, mm -hmm. and it has a punchline to it. That, and I'm talking to four comedians at the time, by the way, right. uh, from Dobie Maxwell's group, uh -huh. you know, four good friends that are, that are uh, Bill Gorgo and Nick Cosentino, and I can't remember all the guys, or, or James Wesley Jackson. Some, it's four comedians I'm talking to, and they videotaped it. You know? Right. Yeah, I, Dobie Maxwell is one of the guys I want to get on, on the podcast as well, and, and we've sh shared a couple messages, and when he has some time, I'm definitely going to get him on. That group is fantastic if you're learning to be a comedian. Yeah, you should tell, if, if you're a comedian out there listening, Dobie Maxwell has a Facebook page. What's the title of it? I think it's, yeah, The Maxwell Method. Of and comedy. Put on, I think yeah. he's got about 3,500 comedians on it, and he's got senior comedians that will give advice, including Dobie, right. who's written a book about stand-up comedy, and he's very talented and and, uh, and is willing to help other comedians along their journey, and, and, I, and I think all comedians should. Right, men and women should go onto his page if you can. Be, the, yeah, the Maxwell method. Yeah, and it's just a great group. I've probably posted five times since I've been on there, but I just read everything. You just soak it all up. It's, it's great stuff. Speaking of that, Dobie's done a lot of mentoring. Any comics around the you've mentored that you you feel pretty proud of? Well, Tiffany Haddish is one. I helped her when she was a little girl. Wow, like thirteen, fourteen years old, and. And uh, she's a big star now. She's, she's blowing she up. More money than me. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's, <laughs> she makes about five, six million a movie now. And God bless her. I, I, she's a wonderful young girl. But I, my whole comedy career, I've tried to help other comedians because I remember what it was like when I was new and, and how grateful I was when somebody would try to give me some advice or counsel. I do a motivation speech. I give motivation talks at colleges and at, at universities, colleges and and corporate for corporate America. And and I, I talk on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, 
and develop a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. But I also give that same talk to comedians, and, and, and I, I tailor it a little bit different, but I call it the joy of stand-up comedy and how to get there. And, and it's it, it, because this is the greatest profession on the planet, bar none. It, it, you think about what a stand-up comedian is, guy or girl. It's the greatest profession on the planet. Let me do a couple of things. One is to explain that the insurance companies of America many years ago did a survey around the world of the 10 fears of man. It took them eight years to complete this survey or something. But the 10 fears of man, death was fourth, pain was second. Getting up in front of an audience was number one fear of mankind. Wow. If you can get up in front of an audience and you can talk about being a house painter for an hour, you, you can talk about being a lawyer or talk about being a bus driver or an architect for an hour. You're in less than 1% of the population of the world. If you can get up and make people laugh for an hour, you're in less than one millionth of 1% of the population of the world. No doubt. You know, what you have is a gift. Mm-hmm. It's a great gift. Don't tarnish it. Laughter is healing. We no longer It's no longer um, a theory. A man named Norman Cousins wrote a book called Laughter Math. He wrote another book called The Anatomy of an Illness. And it was because he was told he was going to die. The doctor told me he had a heart condition that stress had caused his heart condition. He didn't have long to live. He laid in the hospital uh-huh. and he thought, if stress and negative input made me ill, then positive input should make me well. He checked out of the hospital. He'd only watch I Love Lucy reruns, Candid Camera, Three Stooges, The Marx Brothers. He'd listen to comedy albums. He never read the evening news. He never watched the evening news. He never read the papers. He laughed himself to health. He lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. Wow. Because of him, UCLA did research. They know that laughter is psychologically a deterrent, that if you're laughing at a comedian, or a record or something, you're not thinking of your problems. So it's momentarily a psychological deterrent. If it also, because of him, UCLA did research and they found out that when the human brain laughs, chemistry is released from the brain into the bloodstream. So laughter is not only psychologically uplifting, it's physiologically therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And after a hearty laugh, sometimes after a hearty laugh, and you've laughed so hard and like tears rolling down your eyes and you go, Oh, and the sense of well-being comes yeah. over your body. Your body's gone through an actual chemical change. You can feel the stress melt away when you do that. It, well, again, my point of that is if, if laughter is psychologically a deterrent and physiologically therapeutic, and comedians are physicians of the soul, but you comedians out there, you who can do it, this is a this the greatest profession on the planet. Don't destroy that, and that's what I try to tell them, with drugs and alcohol. Don't destroy that gift you have and, and tarnish the gift you have by, by ruining the, the organ that's most important in your body for comedy is your brain. And, and the other reason I say this, don't talk badly about other comedians. Do you yeah. ever went to a doctor and, and the doctor said, geez, doc, I, 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 I was going to go to this Dr. Peabody. You ever heard a doctor say, Dr. Peabody, I wouldn't go to that <laughs> bum. They don't speak poorly of their profession, right. nor should we. Yeah, I've experienced that a little bit because I, I'm in South Bend, Indiana, and we've got a comedy club here. And when I first started going up, everybody was nice to me. And it's a very supportive club, and people talk to you, they give you tips, and it's fantastic. I, I do a lot of traveling, and I went to an open mic in Nashville, Tennessee, and they weren't so nice. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just uh it's just a uh, hot or cold but 
you might as well be nice be nice to everybody because somebody's going to get famous and you want to be on the right side of them when it happens that's one way to look at it but here's the other way to look at it most comedians a lot of comedians are envious of another comedian Mm -hmm. for whatever reason but here's something you you got to learn there's a great hindu proverb there's nothing noble about being superior to another human being true nobility lies in being superior to your former self oh Am I a better friend than I was last year? Am I a better son than I was last year? Am I a better husband than I was last year? Am I a better comedian than I was last year? Uh-huh. So that's who you're – so a lot of comedians are envious, and, and they, they, that's the one thing that you don't want to do is be envious of another comedian because he's not your competition. We all start out with certain comedians, and sometimes they get ahead of us. They – in a career, they do the – uh, certain TV shows that you were wishing you could do or things like that, mm-hmm. you know, and so you get a little envious, but you're not in competition with that other person. You're, the rest of your life, your only competition is your former self. Listen to your tapes. Have I grown? Have I written new material in the last year? Am I a better comedian than I was last year? That's your only competition. And the, keep in mind, comedy isn't a 5K or 10K. It's a triathlon. It's it, it, you, you're you never arrive. You're always you always can get better. Yeah, that's that is so true. Thank you for saying that. That's very helpful. I really I've had you on here for about an hour, so I don't want to I don't want to take up too much of your time. But I had one last question that that I wanted to make sure I asked. Knowing what you know about the world today, would you? If you were just getting out of the Navy again and had the opportunity to do comedy, would you do it all over again? Oh, I would have done a lot sooner. You know, uh-huh. I, I, would, I wish I would have known when I was in the service. I always could tell a joke. I was real good at telling a joke. I could always, and I always was good with imagination. I could imagine how that could have been funnier. Somebody could tell me a joke when I was growing up. And, and it would be a chuckle, but I could figure out a way to make it funnier. And when I was a bartender, I could tell stories about everybody in the bar knew all the customers. And so if I had Scott's permission, I didn't want to, I wouldn't belittle Scott, but I'd say, you know how Scott loves hearing like Sammy Davis Jr. or somebody, he loves mm-hmm. hearing Frank Sinatra. Then I'd, I could tell a funny story about you listening to a Frank Sinatra record when I could create funny stories mm-hmm. when I was a bartender and I got tips better for that because I always have a funny story about right. customers and about their idiosyncrasies, especially when they drink. But I didn't know that I could ever do this on, on stage. If I would have known when I... And the other thing, let me digress to that. I went to Catholic school. Nuns didn't reward you for ad-libs. You know, they, <laughs> they'd whip that ruler out on you right. hardly. But, but I wish somebody would have seen that in me as a child, as a young boy, and maybe got me to a performing arts school. Mm. I, I dropped out of high school when I was 16 years old, and I ran away from home and a lot of other things that I, I did. I wish somebody would have seen that in me when I was younger and said, hey, you've got a talent. I encourage parents all the time when they tell me, gee, my daughter, she just loves to sing. She's seven years old, eight years old. She sings in front of the TV. And I tell them, develop that. Mm-hmm. Develop that. Encourage that. And, and that if, if, if when, when Freddie Prince was my friend, uh, he later committed suicide, God mm-hmm. bless his soul, but he went to a performing arts school in New York, like the movie, like the TV show Fame. Right. I wish I could have gone to a high school like that. That would have been, I wish I'd have learned a lot. I wish I'd have started a lot sooner in answer to your question. Right. I, I hear you so much. If that would have happened to me, I probably would have started before I was 50. But I've always loved art, and I am not good at anything art-wise except for comedy, and I didn't know that. I tried painting. I tried drawing. I tried 
uh, playing instrument, tried singing. I, I just, I can't do any of that. And, you know, when I finally found it, it was, I, I got to say, it's great. You, it's just like what you said at the beginning. You understand your reason for being. Yeah. If I knew that moment that I got a laugh on stage, that that's what I was put on this planet to do, in right. my opinion. And I thank God every single night of my life. I, that's no joke. Every night. You know, I, you know, I tell you something that I wouldn't tell anybody, but I, not that I'm embarrassed by, but I do evening prayers every night before I go. I pray for people that I hear. I have a prayer list. And if somebody tells me, gee, my wife is going to chemotherapy or something, well, I put them on my prayer list. Mm-hmm. But I, I put every night, I thank God for finding this profession for me. Right. I make a living at what I love to do. To this day, I love show business. I hate getting there. It's, it's, the, yeah. it's the travel that, that wears <laughs> you out. But, yeah. but I'm making a living at what I love to do. How many people can say that? Right. I've already told you this. You inspired at least one guy. He's a late bloomer, but you definitely inspired me. And you'll always be my first, Tom. I, I can't tell you how that makes me feel. Yeah, yeah. It's... <laughs> no, 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 but I'm glad. One of the, if you could be in any profession and earn the respect of your peers, I think that's, I think that's a noble achievement because we are in a cutthroat business. People are striving to to succeed and sometimes they want to step all over you to do that but if you can last in this business uh, and make a living in this business and then earn the respect of your peers that makes me feel real good i, I can say tom that when i was uh, bouncing this idea for a podcast off my wife she said okay who's your dream guest and i of course said tom Dreesen, and you're my first guest so i guess i can just do the one episode and be done with it then huh <laughs> That's it. It's all over, Scott. Yeah. There's no sense going any further. Yeah, it makes it easy. <laughs> well, uh, I wish you the best. And, and I'm sure – and tell Doby Maxwell that you – that uh, or I'll tell Doby that I did your podcast and uh, and, and, and put that on Doby, the other comedian, too. Yeah, I will. I'm going to I'm gonna start tapping that for some great interviews. I, I like to keep a low profile b- before I actually launch it, and I want to get those four good interviews done, and then we'll, we'll get this baby going, and hopefully they'll roll in like I want them to. Yeah. yeah. I wish I, you the best. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, Tom. This is this has been almost as good as meeting you in person. <laughs> okay, well, <laughs> I'm I'm glad I'm glad you feel that way. Yeah, and a lot lot of great advice here. Thanks so much, Tom. This is one of the I probably won't sleep tonight. So <laughs> <laughs> Well then I, I may I recommend just a little bit of of uh, of a mild of sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a look at I, that. Okay, buddy. Okay, you take thanks care. Thanks so much, Tom. Wish you the best. Bye bye. Okay, take care.